Okay, we're going to start now. Um, it's, a, it's always a, both a pleasure and a, um, and a thrill, I would say, to um, have Mike Sag um, both educate us and entertain us in so many different ways. He's Professor of Medicine and Associate Dean for Global Health and the Jim Straley Chair in AIDS Research at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. So this is going to be a case presentation. It's going to be multimedia. It'll be multi-level, actually, multi-participants, and uh, it's going to be orchestrated by, um, by Dr. Sag. But the idea is to have case presentations where you will actually participate in. And then there's a group of faculty who you may be able to see um, uh, who are below who will also discuss the cases and then it will be opened up at the end for uh, questions and answers. So this is a major participatory, and um, I think we'll be accompanied by um, a selected musical, um, appropriate musical um, interlude as well. Okay, so let's begin. Please sit down. Okay. Mike, it's yours. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So, as I've done in the past, these are literally cases that came from clinicians over the last year. I actually tracked them, uh, and then I picked the ones that are, on one level, the most frequent, and I think the most current, and then I sort of filter it through a little bit in terms of what was just presented at recent meetings, where sometimes, as Raj said earlier today, the answers change even though the question's the same. So we're going to go through that. I have a panel who's seated down here, some of whom you know. Um, Raj and, and uh, Raj and uh, Magda have already spoken, but uh, from New York we have uh, Trip Hulick and Sharon Nachman, and from Colorado, Christine uh, Erlinson. So uh, you'll hear more from them later today, but without further ado, we'll, we'll get started. Uh, these are my disclosures. So we're going to go over starting therapy, and we're going to highlight a little bit more about the clinical presentation of low-level viremia. You've already heard something about that. What about somebody who has a baseline M184V mutation? Uh, we're going to kind of postpone the pregnancy discussion uh, to a little bit later with Dr. Nachman's talk. Uh, we'll have a little bit of discussion about it to sort of whet your appetite, and then we'll move uh, to that. And then uh, those who are eligible for PrEP will be talked about during uh, Dr. Gulick's presentation. All right, so first question that comes up that I picked up off the street. Seems like we are now starting ARV for about everyone. What about starting immediately at the time of diagnosis? So the case is a 30-year-old woman who was diagnosed with HIV four years ago, four hours ago, sorry, it's not very <laughs> rapid. You see if you're with me. Okay, I've gotten better since four years ago. Four hours ago in the ER. She's asymptomatic. Um, you somehow miraculously get a viral load in a CD4, but um, uh, right. And you get an HLA B5701. You are working. You are working at the most cutting-edge institution on the planet, right? And it's like bones in Star Trek, you know, you just got it all, wipe it up, yeah. So ignore that. Let's just go to this part. So, 
Great start, huh? Yeah, I'm Mike Sank from University of Alabama at Birmingham. And, uh, all right, so what would you do? Start therapy right now in the ER within one to two days, within two weeks, two to four weeks, or some other option, let's go ahead and vote. the Book of Mormon on our side here. It's a latter day. Um, oh, so in this latter day, we treat right away in the ER. Wow, that's pretty exciting. Uh, panel, uh, Dr. Gulick, are you doing that at, at the, the Wild Cornell Medical Center these days? Right in the ER, are you going down there with your pills in hand? And we can get phenotypic testing and tropism testing within oh, minutes. Oh, so too. you're even better than, than our side. Uh-huh. Uh, the one missing piece of the puzzle is, is she ready to start? All right, let's say she is. Okay. Okay, if she says, yes, I'm ready to start, then I think we could support her to start uh -huh. at this point. So I actually voted for E. I was one of the 1%. And what is that, the other option? To say, is she ready to start? Oh, okay. That, that's right. like a critical part of this Fair point. enough. But yeah, if she's ready to start, I think we should support her to start, make sure she's linked into care. Right. And, and has a place to go and someone to call if there are any issues. Okay, other thoughts from the panel? I think to ensure that she is linked to care and has someone to call, I'd probably wait to start her in the outpatient clinic, just yeah. making sure that she's getting a little bit of counseling as to follow up, um, that the ER might, at least in our institution, might not feel as comfortable getting her started on therapy. Right, other thoughts, Raj? You know, I, th I think the data that Mike will probably present really supports earlier and earlier starts. So I, I voted also for one to two days because um, it affirms that I want her to be treated as a serious infection that shouldn't be delayed. In the past, not so long ago, I would wait two weeks. And I think what the data is showing now is that why put an artificial time frame on it like two weeks? Or, you know, I remember telling people to practice taking their antiretrovirals. I think the data now supports do it as quickly as they're ready. As Tripp said, I do usually within one or two days. Um, some of it comes down to the logistics of can you make it happen in the ER, which we can't, but uh, one to two days is what I would do. Okay. Any other thoughts? I mean, I, just okay. to sort of add, I think ideally you would be able, I think that linkage to care is key, and ideally you'd actually be able to sort of mobilize some of your outpatient resources and bring someone in, like a counselor, to the ER to sort of start the conversation about are you ready, are you not ready? to kind of start that process of linkage to care, and I think it's possible in some settings, and I know that's sort of a goal, so you can um, not only start them that same day, but sort of kind of expand the ER scenario into sort of linkage that very same day. Okay, so I think the news on the slide really is here that notice that most everyone was leaning towards within two weeks, and that's, I think, the main point. The logistics of getting things done in the ER, at least in our ER, is impossible. Uh, we're, we have people stacked up waiting for beds and they're lining on stretchers in the hallway and it's just not a conducive place. We don't have anything like that in yeah, New I'm York, sure. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that's because that's your lab tests come back so darn fast. Yeah, I gotcha. But, um, but that's, but that, so the ER may not be the absolute best place, but if it's a testing center that's geared up for it, sure. Um, what, where are we getting this from? Well, there's data that are coming in internationally, these are a review of 22 studies that show that um, the overall uh, uh, outcomes 
are, are really favorable in terms of becoming, um, uh, once you start within uh, a rapid period of time, there's more likely that you will have less loss to follow up and less death by starting early. That's the take home point. But recall, a lot of these studies are being done in, in resource limited settings where somebody has traveled a good distance to get to a clinic to be sent home to come back isn't a great strategy. So getting it done while they're there. Now in Manhattan or, or in one of the boroughs, it, it could be that there are travel problems and so you really want to capture while they're there. So it's all, all issues are local. And to give you an example of that, this is Atlanta and we, they started a program of rapid initiation and it was working as you can kind of see from the graph in terms of getting to um, negative um, for, for uh, getting people to undetectable virus. But the price, not so much uh, money, but personnel, the cost of getting people uh, engaged on the provider side was just too overwhelming and they had to postpone the program and reorient. So I think there's a desire of all of us for good reason to want to start right now. But I think we have to use our own environment to determine what's there. The take home point as early as you can, mostly to engage the patients. But Tripp, your point I think was spot on because we've been doing what we call fast track as an experiment. And for the most part it's worked. But there are some people who, these people are coming at them, you know, social workers and nurses and, and, and coordinators and they get overwhelmed. And then they say, oh, here's some pills, take them. And they, they don't do well in that. But on the other hand, there's people who say, I want, I, just found, I want to be treated right now so you can accommodate them. So what therapy should we start? Okay, this is a little bit more of what I intended from the last presentation. Um, but this time it's a, it's a man who uh, has a viral load of 28,000. These data have come back. This person's come back not uh, has come back from the ER when there are data available. The B57 is positive. The genotype is wild type. Normal renal function, negative past medical history. Okay to start therapy if, if you're ready. And so here are your choices. Um, there's a generic uh, TDF3TC and a lower dose of Fovrins that's now available. And you can sort of scan through. I'll give you a second just to look through these and you can start voting when you're comfortable. But uh, this is not in a rapid setting. This is in just a regular routine uh, clinical setting. Go ahead and vote. We're still in Book of Mormon, for those of you paying attention, playing the home game. Elder Cunningham is about ready to get his thing done, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, what do we got? Okay, so most people are leaning towards uh, integrase inhibitors. Uh, the fixed dose combination uh, with Bictegravir seems to be the most popular. Um, other choices here, um, panel. Who's paying? I expect not me. Yeah. Um, usually, usually it's it's Ryan White program, ADAP, that type of thing. Let's make it that because you're right. If we go through private insurance, we might be restricted. So go ahead and tell us what you're thinking, Sharon. So uh, you have to look at what the patient's insurance is. There is a nice study that recently published looking at 
cost and the savings on cost from a fixed dose combination to the generics as mono or bi-therapy, two pills or three pills versus one pill, was about $20,000 for three months. So there's a huge incentive to think about what does the patient have? Because if you give them a med and they can't afford it, they're never going to take it. Right. Other thoughts? What about um, one pill a day versus, for example, the I think the second most popular answer was TAF FTC with a second pill of dolutegravir. Are two pills a big deal or is it not that big a deal? You didn't mention what other medications he's on. Uh, he's on no, nothing, nothing else. He's got negative me medical history. So he's got to individualize that. Uh -huh. Some people feel very strongly that they want one pill. If he's on nothing else, he yeah. may feel strongly about that. Yeah. Other people don't care and say two pills is fine. You do have some other choices up there, which would be multiple pills. That's right. Um, it, I think it's interesting for the audience. So 88% of us in the room kind of chose the same backbone, CAF, FTC, and a integrase inhibitor with a high barrier to resistance yeah. and no booster. Note, note all those things that we chose there. But we should also point out there's a couple of wrong choices. So everyone remember that he's HLA B5701 positive, so that makes the second choice of Bacavir actually a wrong choice. Sorry so about that. The 1% that should see Dr. Sag after that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give him a break because this is, you know, it's a lot of information coming to you at once. And, uh, I did say positive, though. Okay, so I think, to me, the take-home point is that all of these regimens work. And, and to me, the reason why there's a difference in efficacy at 48 weeks or 96 weeks, I don't think it has much to do with potency if the drugs are taken. I think it has to do with tolerability. And so when we're talking about potency, they're all going to work, and this guy's got 28,000 copies of virus, the ropivirine, fix those combinations. That'll work. All these will work. Um, it's just a question. You've got to avoid a Bacavir for the reason that was said, but it's all about tolerability, in my opinion. So the reason I think that the strand transfer integrase inhibitors have really taken off as the preferred, not only with the ISUSA guidelines, but also with the uh, HHS guidelines, is because they are potent like everything else, but they're also better tolerated in general, and they have a high barrier to resistance as a rule, especially the dolutegravir and the bictegravir. So I think those are the points. Mike, I got a question for Raj. Uh, and that is, what if the patient said to you, will these regimens make me gain weight? <laughs> We're going to get to that. Yeah. You're going to get to it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Hold, hold yeah. that thought. I mean, again, um, the answer changed during the meeting, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, th these are data that were presented at Amsterdam um, last summer. And you can't really tell a whole lot of difference there between the big Tegravir and the Dolutegravir regimens, and the backbones were a little bit different, and they all just kind of track together. So I think making the point that um, I don't think there's a potency issue between these, and so it's a question of what you and the patient would like to do. Um, and it didn't matter if it was greater than 100,000 or less than 100,000, et cetera. But there are other options, and they're all listed here. And, they're, they're all viable as far as uh, potency, but I think the reason that, for all the reasons I've already said, um, that's where the other ones move forward. Um, the raltegravir is now once a day. 
Deraverine is a new drug that's come out, uh, came out last summer, um, and right now it's paired up with TDF and 3TC, but keep your eye out for it being paired up with some longer acting agents over the long run. Um, there's some new drugs coming out um, uh, from Merck that I, I don't think we, there weren't any new data on that, was there, uh, at Croy? Um, I forget the number, 80, 8591. 8591, and it's a long acting, uh, uh, sort of an, it's not exactly a nucleoside, it's a, a, a nuclear transfer inhibitor, which is a whole different mechanism, but it has to do with reverse transcription and a mechanism that's kind of new, but the half-life is long. Now, just yes, no, or not sure, uh, in this person who's got 28,000 copies in a wild-type genotype, would you start with dalutegravir 3TC as initial therapy? Mm -hmm. Yes, no. Is that an acceptable choice? Or not sure? Mm. Anybody know this? We're waiting for the answer from the band's visit right down the street. Yeah. Okay. Whoa. Okay. No, ooh, 60% no. All right. Raj. I'm largely with the audience. I mean, the Gemini studies that I think, suspect we're going to see in a moment from last summer supported dalutegravir 3TC being as good as three-drug therapy, but it was 48-week data, and it is a, a paradigm shift. So the DHHS and I think many guidelines are on the fence right now waiting for the 96-week data, which will probably be presented this summer. So um, in someone in whom, these are the Gemini data, in someone in whom I couldn't use a Bacavir like the last patient, or in whom I couldn't use TAP, say their creatinine clearance was very low or they had osteoporosis, then I would feel quite comfortable using, two, or I would use two-drug therapy because I think it has advantages and the biologic data look good. Um, once someone is suppressed, there are smaller trials, but those also support shifting. So right now, I'm not starting it routinely. I wouldn't be surprised in the next year or two if the data hold up, in the next year, really, um, that we might start using. So why are we... So, I mean, as a group, we're, we're seem to be 60% saying, why are we saying three drugs are better than two drugs? Is that just Tradition. inertia? Tradition. Tradition. It's on the playlist. <laughs> I'm not sure it's going to pop up. I, um, I think we're, God, by nature, it takes time yeah. to change. And so uh, uh, two to three to two is a change. Yeah. So if you think about it, I mean, those of us who have got grayer hair and less hair than maybe some others in the audience, remember the day when we started with monotherapy with AZT, monotherapy with DDI, DDAI, D4T, and we started adding drugs, and then when we hit the sort of 96 era, then it became the cocktail, you know, the cocktail. I like the sound of that, right? Cocktail. So we're going we're gonna to have a cocktail every day. And so the point is that, that that was, we thought we needed that kind of barrier, that kind of power for potency. And I think back then we did for some of the regimens, but nowadays there's power in the prime. I think we have proven, on the other hand, that monotherapy with dalutegravir or raltegravir is not a great idea. So that, that's not going to cut it. But with a little 3TC, um, you can see a difference here. And I'm, I'm not promoting this. I'm just presenting the data because I think it's impressive. Um, it, that, the, that it tended to work about as well. And look at the bottom bars here. The blue is the dual therapy with greater than 500,000. Now remember though, every one of these patients was pre-screened for an M184V. So don't go there 
if you've got a baseline 184B. I want to say that probably three times, so I won't say it three times, but you can imagine me saying it three times. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is Deravarine, I believe, or is it, yeah, this is, I'm just trying to catch up on all the data, that it, it works, but notice that the overall effectiveness or efficacy is a little bit lower. That is probably a function of the, the, the drug use, uh, the, 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 sorry, the study design. And that's why you like to not compare between studies because there are things that go on. But this is Deravarine compared to boosted Darunavir. And at 66% at 96 weeks for Darunavir doesn't, doesn't quite match what our expectations would be. So there are probably some issues with follow-up and um, other things in the study. But I think the take-home point is that the Deravarine was working on par with boosted Darunavir. Okay, seems like we're starting ARV therapy for about everyone. I've heard this before. But now, what about starting therapy for an elite controller? People, you have somebody in your clinic who's got undetectable virus with, yeah, okay. Let's see what we do here. So this is a female who was diagnosed four years ago, asymptomatic. Um, the viral load has always been negative, but her HIV DNA is positive, meaning she's infected. Um, CD4 counts at 870 has been stable. Other labs are normal. B57 is negative, um, and it's a wild-type virus from the DNA. Um, no prior medical history. Okay to start therapy if you think she should. And I'll add um, that right now uh, she doesn't have any plans for pregnancy, although you never know for sure, but that's what when you have. So would you start therapy at this time? Yes or no or maybe? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Crystal clear. That's what I was expecting. Um, what do you guys think about this? Magda, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, we can talk about sort of what are the implications of sort of low-level inflammation, right? And kind of, and, and contribution to aging, perhaps? and sort of development of other comorbidities um, and, and organ damage. So I think it's very nuanced. I think you'd have to have a, I think it really does go back down to the patient, right? Do they, does she have any other comorbidities? And is she, does she kind of understand the implications of treating versus not treating and the, the value added kind of for these sort of less tangible outcomes? So. Yes, Sharon. I think it's I think it's a problem to to when you start talking to this patient. You've been following her for four years. She's not started therapy. And then one Tuesday morning, you woke up and said, "Okay, I think we'll start therapy." <laughs> That's the kind of patient in our population that will be completely non-adherent. So you think you're writing meds for her? She's getting the meds. She's not taking the meds, and you won't be able to tell. So I think you have to be very cautious from the get-go when you have this kind of patient about what your discussions are, your ongoing discussions and put yourself in her situation. How is she going to understand this mixed message you're telling her? Yeah. So I think there's equipoise about this question, which is why I'm so pleased in a way to see the spread this way. Let me kind of walk you through my personal thinking on it, and then the panel can shoot me down if they like. 
On the, on the pro, we should be, let's say the con, we should not be treating, I think Sharon just gave a good reason, there could be social determinants and other things that would say, this isn't gonna work, and I've been telling this person for four years that they don't need it, now I'm gonna say they need it, I better have a good reason. Um, so I think you can say leave well enough alone, watch the CD4 count, if it starts to drift down, which it tends to do given enough time, then you can start therapy, check. On the other side, you could say, that the, the reason the virus is undetectable here is because the immune system is doing a great job of suppressing replication on its own. But to my mind, that means the immune system's churning, it's working, it's got some degree of activity, maybe with some inflammation, and I'm gonna come back to that when we talk about weight gain, but there's some degree of inflammation associated with that that if you did a lymph node biopsy, you're likely to see elaboration of ICAM and BCAM and the lymph nodes and some other things. Um, and other studies have shown that in elite controllers, compared to non-infected people, there are elevations in IL-6 and, and some other markers, CD14, et cetera, that imply the immune system's working. So wouldn't, might it be better to give the immune system a break and give it a little bit of cover and allow it to not work so hard? And so this is where I'm leaning now, and, but, but where it creates a problem is that a lot of the people in the cure field would identify this as success. They would call this a functional cure. And a lot of the treatments are going toward this so that instead of eradication like the London patient or the Berlin patient, they're looking for a functional cure. And so that means undetectable virus consistently and just kind of watch, you know that they still have DNA positive. So, Magda, Magda, I think maybe you could send, sorry, broadly neutralizing antibodies, that's one of the outcomes that they're looking for, right? So are you comfortable, let's say hypothetically five years from now, you've got these treatments you can give and they get to elite controller status just watching them? Yeah, I, huh, I don't, uh, Perfect. I don't think so. I mean, because it is, you know, if we, are we really, Sure, that there is no, you know, virus, you know, hidden anywhere in the latent reservoir. And do, would we, after from giving a broadly neutralizing antibody, are we going to sort of maybe derive a benefit of kind of mopping up the residual virus and sort of, you know, through the effector function of these broadly neutralizing antibodies, and perhaps, kind of, you know, um, assuming, you know, achieving some sort of a more of a quiescent um, status of the immune activation, right? Right. Yeah. So, Raj. So, I, I tend to also counsel people on overtime that I think it's advisable to treat, not because I can prove it, actually. Trip Gulick did an analysis of the START study, which is a randomized study of treating early versus treating later, and those people who had a viral load less than 3,000, you know, they couldn't show a clinical benefit. They, the events were not different, but there are data that these elite controllers, as Mike said, have more inflammation, but they even also have more um, thickening of their carotid artery. And there's some data saying they might have more cardiac events. It's, it's not definitive. But the reason why I think these people aren't a model for a functional cure, there is an entity of what's called post-treatment controllers. Those are people who got some intervention, usually ART, and then they go off ART, and those guys are controlling. The Visconti cohort in France, there's a group of post-treatment controllers called the CHAMP. They seem to differ from these elite controllers and they don't seem to have the same inflammation that these elite controllers do. I, I think something about these elite controllers is putting them at some risk. I can't prove it, but I think they are at some risk. So 
there are now data treating some of these individuals and reducing their immune activation, and, and maybe that will be helpful in the long term. We probably will never be able to prove it. I think a functional cure might be those post-treatment controllers who have less inflammation. Yeah, I just wanted to remind us all that we don't have randomized data to answer this question. Uh, there was a study that w the ACTG tried to do, and it was unsuccessful. And you can guess that it would be, right? Because people who were enrolled either wanted to start treatment or didn't want to start, but they didn't want to be randomized to yes or no. So that study shut down before it could be completed. The, the other thing I would add is in this conversation, and, and like my colleagues, I would gently push the person to consider starting, but one thing I would tell her that we don't get to tell other patients is she could stop if she wanted to, and, and probably that's not a dangerous thing to do in a person like her who's an elite controller. So yeah. if she didn't like the meds or she had a side effect or whatever, mm -hmm. it would be okay to stop. So they don't tend to lose elite control. There are some cases where people have stopped and they stay elite controllers, which is a big deal. So, so I would declare this particular question a success. <laughs> because it brought out everything I wanted to, to bring up. It, it, so if you walked in the room not knowing what to do, you still don't know what to do. So there we are. Mission accomplished. All right. What should I change? Should I change a regimen when low detectable virus is present? Now you've heard something about that. And let's see what the mindset is after seeing some data. And I've got a little bit more data. So this is a 55-year-old guy who's referred to you, diagnosed 18 years ago with HIV. Viral load was almost a million initially. CD4 count was 70. And now viral load's about 85, and the prior value was 62. He's always kind of never going above 100, um, but never less than 20. A CD4 count now is uh, 18 years later is 525. Um, and been through a bunch of regimens, but now is on dolutegravir boosted Darunavir and 3TC, and we don't have resistance data uh, available to us. So, would you change his therapy now? Would you would you keep him the same and not sure? And I'll tell you, he's he's tolerating the regimen. It's not like he's having a problem that way. But just from a biologic perspective, go ahead and vote. Sir, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. Smile sir, more, talk less. I was seeking an accelerated course of study. When I got sort of out of sorts with a buddy of yours, I may have punched him. It's a blur, sir. He handled the financial... Ah, so it changed a little, right? I mean, I think it was 60%. All right, I'm kind of with you on this. I'm showing my, showing my cards here, but um, Raj showed you some data. Any other thoughts? Would anybody think to change on the panel? It's okay if you did. I mean, people people have done this, right? They've changed regimens. They've added additional agents. They've added integrase inhibitors to regimens. They've added NNRTIs. Nothing has budged. And what happens? Level. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, right? Nothing. Okay. So let me show you, share with you a different study. Uh, Raj, I think, showed the best study from uh, Croy, but there's another study that the NA Accord did. It was a little different, so, so stay with me now. What they did is they looked at people who suppressed, after starting initial therapy, within six months, uh, if they suppressed within six to 12 months, or if it took them over 12 months to suppress. And you can see that, as you might expect, um, the year of initiation was the same, but the viral load is higher for those who took a little longer to suppress. You'd guess that. 
and fewer, fewer of them were on a, on a strand, uh, strand transfer integrase inhibitor. Um, more of them had an AIDS diagnosis. It's pretty much what you would have guessed for someone who's going to take a while. And what they did after they categorized them or parsed them in this way, they then asked the question, how did they do in terms of virologic suppression, blips, and sustained upper-level viremia so, and failure? So let's start with the blips. So they noticed blips in, in about 25% of the whole population, but it didn't seem to matter whether they were one of these groups or not. So the blipping, is that a word? The blipping was, um, was pretty consistent throughout and it didn't matter. Same thing was true for the people that have low level viremia like our case. To be honest, that surprised me because at least in my anecdotal experiment, experience, though it's experiment too, those folks were more like this guy who had a high baseline viral load, took him a little longer to get undetectable and then once he got there, he didn't really go to less than 20. But the data show, yeah, a little bit more, but not significantly. This is the key point, that those that took longer to suppress, in general, had a higher overall rate, only 18%, but a higher rate of ultimate virologic failure, meaning sustained viremia above 200, where you would switch the regimen after a resistance test and that type of thing. So how does, how does this sit with you guys? Does this have these data have face validity? Is it consistent with your experience? Was it, what would you take home from this? The last point that you made, the group that takes 12 months to suppress is probably a heterogeneous group. There's yeah. probably a bunch of people in there who have intermittent adherence, mm -hmm. and you'd guess that that would predict the last thing, mm -hmm. virologic failure. Yep. And you're right, and I should say this, uh, but um, if, if somebody hit this point, they were then censored, so they would not be necessarily a part of these two analyses. So it's skewing it towards the failure group. So just nod of the head, does this look about right? I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, and, and so it also could be that because it's clinical settings, maybe they didn't get a repeat viral load until after 12 months, and so they get put in that group. But anyway, it's kind of interesting. All right, next question. What regimen should I use as initial therapy in a woman who desires to become pregnant? I will say that we are organized here at the IASUSA in these. We, ha we coordinate these things, and so Dr. Nachman is going to talk to you at length about this. I'm just doing the test question to, to prepare you for the afternoon's talk. I, I thought it was a commercial for the it you have is. to stay awake. All right, thinly veiled. Okay, so this is a lady who's on ARV and informs you she'd like to become pregnant. Um, and she's asymptomatic, no past medical history, viral load's 28,000, CD4 counts 650, HLA B5701 is negative, wild type virus, and she's currently on dolutegravir, abacavir 3TC with an undetectable viral load. Not pregnant yet. What are you gonna do? Keep her on her current regimen or switch to one of these others? Let's go ahead and vote. Back to Book of Mormon. Somehow I keep thinking of Bono when I hear this. I don't know why. That's why. Africa, I flew in here and became one with this land. 
ah, so Dr. Nachman, only 8% would continue. Um, I'll let you give the preview and then we're gonna move on because I don't wanna dwell on this to take, take away from your talk. So the real question is, is should you be on dolutegavir or periconceptually? And the question came up is, are there going to be toxicities to the mother as well as a concern of toxicities to the fetus that would make you think twice about using that regimen? Okay, I'll make a few other, I'll, I'll make a few other points um, that we will get to in her talk. One, notice that the majority of people, if you look at it, went to a TDF regimen as opposed to a TAF regimen. And in our first um, case, when we just tr treated out of the box, um, most people picked a TAF regimen, but now we have more leaning towards TDF. That may be important. And there's a few, there's a couple people that went with Kobe Sistat, 9%. I wanna highlight that, we'll hear about that later. So you're teed up for your talk later this afternoon. Thank you for allowing us this brief advertising moment. <laughs> This is to keep you here for after lunch, sort of. Okay, da, but this is not in the talk. So this is, this is something I'm just curious about. In the case of a woman who's pregnant and she's on therapy with whatever, and she's undetectable, and then she delivers, can she safely breastfeed? In other words, does U equal U apply to breastfeed, in your opinion? Go ahead and vote. We're here today to honor Scott. Most people say no. This is to me, almost more of a faith-based versus evidence-based sort of question. Do you believe that it's transmitted versus it's not? So Dr. Nachman, set, set me straight. Tell me that I'm, I'm a cowboy from Alabama who just does stuff just because. Oh, in three minutes or less. So the answer is in the United States where we do have safe, effective alternatives that there is zero risk to the baby if we give them formula feeding, the answer would be you would prefer not to breastfeed. At our international sites where there is no safe alternative to breastfeeding, and we have to weigh the risk to the baby of possibly getting infection, because while U equals U, while they come to see you when they're taking their medications, the time of breastfeeding is many months. And there is unfortunately a fair amount of non-adherence or intermittent adherence that occurs during breastfeeding, and then that poses a real risk to the baby during some of those times. And when we have looked at it, moms, who are undetectable, but those babies get infected, and we've actually looked at serial samples, we pick up that they are non-adherent at different times. And so while theoretically they are U equals U, they have intermittent areas that they may not be adherent, and that is a real risk to the baby. So currently on the ACOG recommendations, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the United States, they are suggesting that you should still continue to bottle feed those babies. However, this is an ongoing dialogue not only in our country, as well as other countries, about with other antiretrovirals and the possibility of long-acting injectable antiretrovirals, that the risk to the mom to be non-adherent goes down 
then the true you equals you would allow those women to in fact breastfeed because it would be a zero risk to the fetus and excuse me to the infant during that long amount of time that we want you to breastfeed and how long do we expect women to breastfeed a year so that is many many months of taking meds and assuring that there is no breakthroughs so the right answer is it's a moving target stay tuned okay but you're, you're right on every point the question though if someone actually took the medicine every day, they did, and you're not giving advice of whether they should or shouldn't, do you think that U equals U, and they're undetectable less than 20 the entire time they're breastfeeding, do you think, what do you think the likelihood of transmission to the baby would be in that setting? It would probably be low to zero. Right, so it'd be similar. That was, yeah, good, I like that answer. It makes sense to me. But your points about the, the social determinants always come into play, right? Because um, we wanna make sure that mom is, is taking medicine regularly throughout the time, and if she's not, then that does put the baby at risk. Okay, this is something also that was presented as a poster. Uh, we've known this answer indirectly for a while, but there was some new data from Croy that Raj didn't have time to go into that about what regimen should we use when an M184B mutation is present at baseline. So this is a woman who newly diagnosed this is a viral load, 128,000, CD4 count of 350, HLA B57 negative. She has both an M184B and a K103N mutation at baseline. No prior medical history to speak of, no, doesn't plan to get pregnant, okay to start therapy if you think she should. Your choices are, this is a, no, this, I changed the, it a little bit from the original, but it's very similar. Um, you'll notice that there probably are some really wrong answers there. Hint, let's go ahead and vote. M184B. Oh. One answer is really rotten. There's something rotten. There's something rotten. You can smell it, you can tell it's something rotten. Now the kingdom is shot and it's all gone to pot. Heaven help us, there is something rotten. Well, that was good timing. Okay. Ooh, four percent got a something rotten answer. Um, sorry. So this was this was a rotten answer because remember I said I was going to say three times you don't use this regimen when there's a baseline in 184V. E. Okay. Well, 96 percent are on target here. So panel, um, the the audience really likes the answer they gave initially with the BIC, TAF, FTC, does the 184V and for that matter the K103N affect your thinking on whether to use the same type of regimen? Raj. You know, I probably wouldn't use a back for a 3TC dolutegravir either because unlike um, TAF and AZT and D4T, which we don't use, um, M184V doesn't sensitize the virus to um, a back of it, whereas it does sensitize the virus to TAF. So I, I would stay away from those uh, both of those options. Um, there are data in the switch setting that if you've, if you've got M184V that, that a um, integrase inhibitor-based regimen with TAF-FTC does keep people suppressed, so that's, that's helpful. And then um, the only other point, if you would go back for one second, I thought. Um, Yeah, so I, there are data now that, that you can, in the past I would use a protease inhibitor, but I'm getting more and more and more comfortable with using a high, um, 
barrier to resistance integrase inhibitor like um, Bactegavir and Dalgatravir. Oh, yeah, this is the plan I wanted to make. This is really unusual. M184V as a transmitted drug resistance mutation occurs less than 2% of the time, or about 2%. It's rare to do this, but when you get it, then you've got to go down this path. Okay. Uh, yeah, so the, the slide that I flashed to, this was a study that was out of, um, uh, okay, we're just, we got a little technical issue with the projector. The, the bottom line is that um, the switch study showed that the majority, like 98%, if they had a baseline of 184V and you switched them to pretty much almost any regimen, except with the Bacavir story, which was well stated, that there will still be activity that's indistinguishable from wild type. Um, you could also argue that the presence of a K103N uh, in certain instances will improve susceptibility to tenofovir-based regimens, as will the M184V to a degree. And so those are the things that uh, kind of play into this biologically. But I, I think what I'm trying to say is that I get this question a lot, um, just kind of walking through clinic and somebody will say, hey, look at this genotype. I want to start them on uh, my usual regimen with uh, tenofovir of whatever flavor with uh, FTC and uh, an integrase inhibitor. And is it okay? And the answer is yes, it's okay. Yeah, Trip. Just to be provocative, the, uh, I think pairing this in this scenario with a boosted protease inhibitor is the most data-driven strategy because we do have a lot of data to support that. I don't think every regimen is going to work here, even though you're resensitizing tenofovir with the M184V. Yep. So I would advise shying away from third drugs with low barriers to resistance. Yeah. That would include Elvitegravir, Raltegravir, any NNRTI. So we sh those were all choices, I think. Yeah, right. And we had slide. a K103N here, which made the NNRTIs even more suspect. So there's I agree. I would use Bictegravir, Dalutegravir, or a BCPI. I agree with you, Trip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was going to say there's emerging data with Dalutegravir. I haven't seen data with Bictegravir in this scenario. Have this, you? There were some here with, with Bictegravir. This was the Acosta study or Acota study, which was abstract 0551. You can go to the website, by the way, now and, and pull these all down if you'd like. So in your handouts, when you, you're going to get the cases in 24 hours, I put references in here if you want to pull them and look at them yourself. Okay, we've just answered this, but I've got a few twists on it that I'd like to uh, throw in here. Does, does integrase, do integrase inhibitor therapy, does it cause weight gain? So we've got a 47-year-old lady who starts on uh, BIC, FTC, and TAF, and from her original IRV regimen, which was a boosted darunavir. She was diagnosed four years ago. She's been less than 20 copies. She's now got a CD4 count near 1,000. Um, but since she started this current regimen 12 months ago, her weight went from 145 pounds to 171 pounds. At this point, you would <laughs> keep her on what she did, you know, the George Herbert Walker Bush, not going to change wouldn't be prudent, or switch her to something else. You've got a whole bunch of options. Let's go ahead and vote.
65% would stay the course. Panel? Can you tell us why you switched her from her original regimen to the current regimen? From the TAF, TDF to the TAF? Um, is that the reason why she gained the weight, you think? No, the question is if you're going to think about switching her, more information about what she was on beforehand and the reasons to switch her to her current regimen will help you understand where you go next. Right. Um, a lot of people are switching because they're going from a TDF to TAF and oh, while we're at it, we might as well get you off a boosting agent because of the drug-drug interaction. There's a lot of that and I, I can't argue with it if it's if the patient and the provider feel like that's the thing to do. I think the boosting gets a little tiresome after a while. In fact, there are no recommended regimens anymore with a boosted agent, so that's kind of the reason. It's a nuance, but it's it's important. That a 40 pound or a 20 pound weight gain is not a nuance. Well, no, but you didn't know that at the time you switched. <laughs> I think there's a couple important points here. One, as Raj mentioned, there's currently no data showing that if we change her off of this therapy that her weight's going to miraculously disappear and be a weight loss reducing drug like um, had been right. proposed. Uh, the other important point is she switched from TDF to TAF, and so there's a two-drug switch that we're seeing with a lot of these patients. Yeah. And we assume it's probably the integrase inhibitor, but there could also be a role that the switch from TDF to TAF is playing, particularly in regards to some of those symptoms with nausea. Um, and the other point is she switched from, an, an integrate, or from a boosted PI to an integrase inhibitor. If she switched from a Favarin, that's actually where we're seeing some of the most weight gain. Yeah. And so we could have even seen a greater weight gain if she'd been on um, the, boost, the combination pill with the Favarins and then switched over. I mean, personally, I've noticed that as I've switched people to integrase inhibitors, I've gained 30 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. I think, that's the, <laughs> I think that's the other point to make is we live in a, a society where obesity, not that, not calling right. you obese by any means, but so, where um, <laughs> issues with like body Rodney weight. Like Rodney Dangerfield are, <laughs> up here. <laughs> where some of these, um, where, where people are gaining weight, they're getting older and weight gain is common and can we actually attribute her weight gain to the drug or that she feels better or that uh, she started eating a lot more because something else happened in her life and she's stressed out about other things. So. Okay, well, let, let's look back. This is what Dr. Gandhi showed us, and uh, these are real data. Um, the gains are anywhere between four for the NRTIs and six, and these are with um, a naive therapy, if I'm not mistaken, right? So something happens, but here's what I'd like to focus on. If you notice, most of the weight gain is in the first 12 months, and then afterwards it kind of plateaus. Right? So it seems to be something with that initial therapy, and it's awfully quick, right? It tends to take off pretty quickly after starting therapy. So one of the, one of the presentations, uh, uh, this is Rafi's data at, um, uh, for PrEP using cabotegravir, which is sort of like an injectable dietegravir. They didn't see the weight gain in a non-infected population did not see it, which putting those two things together and waving my hands a lot with that caveat, maybe there's something going on in an infected person that the treatments are affecting, perhaps in the way of inflammation. So this is John Curtis' talk. He, he's referring to uh, an abstract, again, at Croy, the poster was 673, but there was a lot of higher IL-6 and TNF, which 
in my mind, are kind of weight loss inducing cytokines. And if you treat, you're going to get those reduced and some weight gains going to follow theoretically. So could there be a differential in the effect on inflammation? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there because I think it's hard. I, I, I mean, I think you're like me and we're all together in this. When you see something uh, as a phenomena, we can just embrace it and say, well, that's just what you see. But I think all of us like to say, well, I wonder why. Why is that happening? And so this is kind of my take. I don't know, Raj, what do you think? You know, I want to amplify one thing that Christine said about this, these data. When people switch, they don't always just switch to an integrase inhibitor. And the point about TAF should be kept in mind. Um, Brad Hare, when he was asked about the DISCOVER trial in PrEP, it was, um, that was a comparison in uninfected people of TAF versus TDF, and I, I believe he said there was somewhat more weight gain statistically significantly, so not a, a big change difference, but between TAF and TDF. So watch the TAF-TDF um, distinction and see if, where that plays out. Maybe this is multifactorial and it's the integrase inhibitor and the, and the switch from TDF to TAF. That's something to be determined. My understanding is people are working on trying to, the companies that make this are probably going to be presenting some data in the next month to try to sort out some of this, and we'll, we'll have to see. I don't think Bictegravir, though, is, is uh, off the table. There was a review recently on weight gain and integrase inhibitors, and in that review, they actually said that the weight gain with Bictegravir and Dolutegravir was very, very similar. So I don't think the automatic thing is to go to, from Dolutegravir to Bictegravir. We don't have supportive data for that. Can, can I just jump in and say, I think we really have to be cautious here about, about what we're seeing and what we're recommending here. And it seems to me it's premature to conclude that it's directly related to the drugs because the data we've seen is all over the place, right? right. We're seeing it in HIV infected. We're seeing it in HIV uninfected. We're people, seeing people starting initial regimens. We're seeing people switch to other regimens. And then we have this whole backdrop of everybody's getting fatter. Yeah. Um, in the States. And then there was this whole idea, and, and uh, one guy gave a plenary, I thought gave a great plenary. The first slide he showed was this huge increase in weight, and then he said, this is for the general population, <laughs> showing that. And then I like Raj, you said the idea of, could it be that integrase inhibitors, you're getting the virus down faster and you're preventing some of the catabolic effect of the virus? I mean, we're hand-waving, but... Yeah. For I us think to this take all this and begin to yeah. change our management yeah. of yeah. patients or switch people off these regimens, I, I think we really have to be careful yeah. before I, we I think that's fair. I think we need to that. figure this out, and this is just kind of a wetting our appetite for things that have to be done. So I agree. Wetting your appetite? Did you really say that? <laughs> and on that note, all right, so the next thing was, what, what should I use for prep? Well, guess what? We're not going there because Dr. Gulick, at the end of his talk, has got six cases three three cases and we'll go into that at that point so i think i'll close here just to keep us on time we'll have time for questions but thank you again for your attention and putting up with my nonsense so so stay here mike and i guess the panel is dismissed uh these are going to be quick the panel can stay where they are and look at the audience or can be dismissed. Um, so it seems like a, a, I don't know if it's a good or bad time to actually start talking about weight gain because we're about to go to lunch after this. Yes, okay. So there are scales outside and you can weigh yourself before and or weigh after your sandwich. and maybe we'll resolve this issue. Right. Um, 
Okay, so we have time for some questions, and I have a few. Um, not as many as you would have hoped, so I'll have to make some up. No? Okay, so um, this is a little off, but it, um, what we were focusing on, but I think it's an important question. What about neuropsychiatric effects of integrase inhibitors? Is there any information related to that? And is there something that should be of concern? It's, it's to my mind, anecdotal. I've seen several patients who, not several, a few patients who on, they started therapy, they were on an integrase inhibitor and they developed a profound depression uh, that seemed to be temporally related. Is that causal? I don't think so. But that's what happened. And I think there have been some other discussions, but I, I have trouble linking those things. Maybe when we get into pharmacogenetics, we can start finding some linkages there that you know, might get picked up, but I, I don't know, what, what does the panel think? There was a whole symposium at Croy on this issue as well, so that one day was weight gain and integrase inhibitors, another day was neuropsychiatric complication and integrase inhibitors, and the data were all over the place, I thought. Raj, do you agree? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. I I felt that the neuropsychiatric effects was even less clear in my mind. I left not knowing uh, that one, but I, there's anecdotes, and, and, um, and for some reason in Europe, they do these case series, and they have, like, very high rates of this neuropsychiatric effects. I've seen it very infrequently. There's published data from Amsterdam with a really high rate that's never been seen in any other cohorts. That was during the winter when there was no sunshine. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's take a poll of the audience. Of those of you, you're probably all using integrase inhibitors. Have you seen a lot of neuropsychiatric? Con Raise your hand if you Raise have. your hand. A lot. A lot. Okay. Not a lot. Or not. Okay. Um, so here's another additional sort of, um, I wouldn't say dilemma, but maybe occurrence uh, to debate about, and that is, is there a relationship to integrase inhibitors and diabetes mellitus? Hmm. And that could that have some influence in terms Only of Only among gain? those who went, gained weight. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know that it's causal either. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of incidental case reports of patients that developed diabetes within weeks of starting integrase inhibitors, even outside of weight gain, with no yep. weight gain. So I think there's some anecdotal evidence, but not really any clear data yet suggesting that. Um, there's a little bit of in vitro data suggesting that dalutegravir in particular may get into the fat, yeah. um, and so it could be something with interference of insulin metabolism in the, in the fat. Apparently, there was one data on insulin resistance not really getting affected, so there may be these case, cases that are somewhat exceptional. Apparently, integrase inhibitors cause climate change as well. <laughs> cause climate change. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So all the people have gained weight and go in the ocean at the same time, the sea level rises. <laughs> um, well, we're running out of questions. Um, so there is a little bit of information. You showed the slide, but of, and we've always thought that there was some connection between protease inhibitors and weight gain, anecdotally. Yeah. And it, it remains anecdotal and not really confirmed, but I've had that impression in the past also. Yeah, I'm going to give an answer that I'm going to qualify with a preface to say. Um, I, I'm not trying to throw shade on the notion of either the weight gain or the diabetes, but when 
I pull back and I look at the big picture and I look around and see the majority, 87, 88% of our patients having undetectable virus and people living in a pretty near normal lifespan, and I flash back to 30 years ago, it's kind of hard for me to get, I mean, right. I, I'm sensitive to it, but I'm also looking at the big picture and, and very grateful for the options that we have. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be mindful of side effects, but wow, we've really come a long way, and that's pretty cool. The fact that we can talk about weight gain and diabetes as opposed to dying with something god-awful, I think, is pretty remarkable. Maybe that's... Well, we're going to close on that. <laughs> Lunchtime. That, 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 that's, a great, that's a great comment to uh, go to lunch with. Okay, okay. thanks. <laughs>